Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2. I'd like to read three verses in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, which will suggest a theme to us that I would like to um, share with you today. Uh, I think it's a very important theme, one that um, I'm sure you're familiar with, but one we need to be reminded about and just look into God's Word a little bit more to develop it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, let's read verse 8, 9, and 10. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Note verse 9. The word of God is not bound. It's the title of my message this morning, God's word not bound. Paul was for the second time, at least for the second time, uh, in a dungeon, in chains. Uh, He probably only had, at this point in his life, he probably only had a few months to live before he would become a martyr. And he is in bonds. He is chained. His life will end shortly. His story will be over. His day in the sun is over. And he's now limited He's confined. Paul is in bonds, but with all confidence of faith, with assurance, with an understanding of, by way of his experience and what he's learned about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the triune God, he could say and say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that though he himself was suffering trouble as an evildoer, that is, as a malefactor, even to the point where he would be put in jail, Yet the word of God was not bound. He had no liberty. The word of God had liberty. His confidence was in God's ongoing gospel, God's ongoing program to uh, proclamate that gospel throughout the world, saving sinners, sanctifying saints, and getting glory for himself. Paul earlier, and we'll look at this in a little bit, but Paul earlier was in Acts chapter 28. He was also uh, confined, though not in a dungeon. He was um, confined, uh, living out his Christian ministry at that point. Um, And at that earlier point, he said that whatever capacity he was in, he was going to fulfill his ministry, uh, live out the, the, the tasks that God has given to him. And that's, M.O. in Paul's life would continue even to this point here in uh, Timothy where he realizes uh, it's the end. But every single day he would live out his ministry. Uh, That verse in Acts, Paul actually goes on to say that the things that have happened to him happened rather for the furtherance of the gospel because wherever he was in chains, wherever he was bound, it said that Christ was made manifest in the palace and other places and other brethren were waxing confident in the Lord. I was thinking about Paul's confidence in God's word in light of today, as you know, the assault on God's word and just the absolute attack in warfare on God's word today. But God's word is not bound. I'd like to share with you, just by way of our outline, five, five segments uh, this morning. I'd like to speak very briefly about the assault on God's word, reminding you how severe and all-encompassing it is. And then I'd like to look at three case studies. We'll first of all look at the case study of Jehoiakim from uh, Jeremiah 36. I'll give you these references when we get there. Uh, Then we'll look at a second case study of the persecuted uh, Christians in Acts chapter 8. 
And then we'll look at Paul in Acts chapter 20, 28. And then we'll look at why God's word cannot be bound. And of course, there's, we could say, well, of course, it's God's word. It can't be bound. But, but what, like to think through, why, why is it? What, what is God doing? What is the nature of God's word that it cannot be limited? And then we'll close with a few applications. First of all, the assault on God's word. I, I know, brethren, you are aware that there is an attack, there is an assault on God's word. Even though God himself said, not just here in Timothy, but all of the, the, the pictures of God's word, um, the descriptions that it is a living and abiding word, that it's in the hands of a, of a triune God, even though God has said his word is, is so special, so unique, so, so alive in God's hands, yet man to this day and to the end of time will attack it, outlaw it, diminish it, uh, redefine it, discredit it, um, dilute it. I mean, think of all those synonyms that would, would attempt to harm God's word. These attacks, um, they can be subtle, they can be overt, they can be hidden. God's word is constantly on, as it were, the battlefield with, with these attacks attempting to limit or extinguish it. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you are aware that this conflict started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 where we read in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which God, which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Actually, I believe it could be shown Eve's disposition changed as soon as she heard these words of Satan. Even before the arguments came to the, to the fore, even though she started to engage him, which as soon as she began to engage him, she lost the battle. But as soon as Eve heard the voice, Everything changes. And Satan, as you know, changes the names of God in this, these verses. And then he casts doubts on God's word and then outright lies. This, this is an epic moment. It's an epic moment where God's word was subtly altered, chained. Doubts were cast upon it. Lies were mixed in with it. And the assault ever since then has continued Sometimes hidden, sometimes open, but it's an assault on God's word. Hath God really said? And today, I think perhaps more than, than anything, there is a, there's a dimming of God's word. I have, have light fixtures at my house and there's an on-off switch, but right next to that on-off switch, there's a sliding switch where you can dim the light and you can slowly dim the light until it is extinguished, it is off. And in the context of, of Eve's fall, where she thought she could be as a god, that's what we have today. You are as gods, so you can define your own gender. You are a god, you can decide when life begins or life ends. You are a god, you can live your own life, not in accordance with God's archaic word that is no longer relevant, you make the decision. You make your morals. You decide who God is. Much like on board with Jonah, where they ran into this tremendous storm and every man prayed to his own God. They all had different gods. What makes your God better than my God? It, it is... I think in our world, at least in my world, we're kind of insulated from the overt, most of the overt attack on God's word. We might see a thing on the news, we might hear something, 
But it is all-out warfare, discrediting, diluting, redefining God's word. Let me make a dozen statements, and I just want you to think about it when I make it. I'm not going to say the numbers. I just want to make these statements about God's word. Just think about it for a minute to see how this registers with us, that we've heard it, we see it. Twelve statements. In our day, God's word is viewed as archaic and irrelevant. Those who seek to either redefine God's word or reinterpret it, they do so with some kind of authority or some kind of boldness that would would supersede what God has really said. There are those who seek to water it down, making it more pleasing to men, sometimes or often for the purpose of merchandising. So, of course, there we have the plethora of Bible translations. As we think about the current cancel culture movement, we should include the Bible and cancel it because, after all, as we want to cancel early Americana, Wasn't the Bible part of that culture? I think we should cancel the Bible as well. The importance of God's word in our day is downplayed, even in the life of a believer. According to a a recent Pew Research survey, only 75% of evangelical Christians, now this is evangelical Christians, only 75% believe it's the actual inerrant, infallible word of God, God speaking it. Some churches have reduced or, excuse me, have replaced the primacy of expository preaching and replaced it with man-centered gimmicks to entertain the congregants. There are attempts to remove its authority and devalue it by saying, well, it's an historical narrative. Some churches, so as not to give offense, have told the pastor he can only preach for 10, 15, 20 minutes. And as a former pastor of mine used to say, sermonettes make Christianettes. (laughs) The doctrines of God's word have been modified or ignored. We should thank God that we have a pastor who will not... shunned to declare the whole counsel of God to us. Authority of Scripture is ridiculed by the atheist and often little valued by the religionist. Oftentimes there's a pragmatic approach to God and his word, thus denying the power thereof. Remember, God's word is a living word. There is an adding and taking away from the prophecy of this book. Or lastly, the Bible oftentimes is reduced to moral principles. Christ in all of his majesty and all of his glory. Christ on every page. Christ in all the types, shadows, and figures. The open declarations, the doctrines that that reveal Christ to us are ignored. And what is more important is how to get your financial life in order based on some scriptural principles from the book of Proverbs, let's say. Why it's important to have Christian friends or 101 other things, moral living. And of course, if you're familiar with church history, there were those who would uncompromisingly stand on the eternal word of God. And at the same time, those would stand for the reality of what God's word really means. There are those who were like, like Ahab, who, who hated that, that, that uh, good prophet, Micaiah, Micaiah A, hating him because he loved God's word and he declared it in truth, in sincerity. In church history, there have been so many attacks on God's word as, as being vulgar. That is, it, 
us common people couldn't have God's word because we couldn't understand it. We couldn't apply it. We had no papal authority to teach it or interpret it. The fourth rule of the Council of Trent stated that the indiscriminate circulation of the Bible, giving a Bible, giving a tract to a friend, that would generate more harm than good. And so if you were caught, your sins could not be absolved by the priest unless you gave over all of those copies of God's word. We hear that today and we think, that that's amazing. How could that happen? How could that happen in America, a free society? And yet there doesn't have to be a demand on you to physically take away your book, the Bible. But there's a thousand and one other attempts to, to figuratively and very really take away that word. I grew up in the Roman church where there was a cross-pollinization of church dogma and Latin and Bible where I was entirely confused. I didn't know what this book said. And of course, the, the French rationalist Voltaire, uh, who, who did so much, so much, ill and evil to God's word. And he was the one who said that two centuries after he would die, there wouldn't be a single Bible in print in anyone's home. And of course, all of you have multiple copies of God's word, and I'll bet you don't have a single book by Voltaire. God's word is not bound. Despite what we see on the battlefield, God's word will win the day. We mentioned Voltaire. We can't ignore in America or the influences on America. Thomas Paine, Robert Ingersoll, uh, the age of reason. Since Genesis chapter 3, there has been this assault, this attack on God's word. Ignoring it, limiting it, discrediting, extinguishing it. Whereas God's word is, because it glorifies God, because it's God's word, God's word is not bound. It is worth more, as the psalmist said, worth, worth more than thousands of gold and silver. Believe it or not, I had a, a good friend. Lori and I had this good friend. He's a jeweler. And when you would go into his house when he used to live in, in the town where we live, he had one of those entry, entry tables and he had an old-fashioned scale that was an antique, one of these ones that has the two, the two platens. And he had on one a little tiny copy of the Bible. And then on the other one, he had all these jewels, fake jewels and diamonds and gold pieces. And he had it set so that the Bible was, was down at heavy and all the jewels and gold was up high. I said, Jim, what, what is this all about? He goes, do I have to say anything? <laughs> he goes, don't you understand it? He said, he, he was a jeweler. He owned a jewelry store. He said, actually, I feel a little bit awkward because I think people think I'm into the world. I'm into jewels and diamonds. He goes, I want to make a statement. When people come into my house, they see. And, and I agreed with, he's a good brother in the Lord, that that is the reality of God's word. Worth more than thousands of gold and silver. We don't need to validate God's word. We don't need to credential God's word. We're not evidentialists where we have to have some evidence that this is God's word. And that having to prove God's word is one of the tacks that the enemies of God's word will take. God's word is not bound, even in light of all of the assaults and attacks on it. Well, I'd like to know in the next place, secondly, look at the first case study of Jehoiakim. I'm going to spend more time on this case study, less time on the following two. But I think this is probably a, a, a scene that you're very familiar with in God's word from Jeremiah chapter 36, proving that God's word is not bound. And here in Jeremiah 36, we're dealing with that very wicked king of Judah, uh, Jehoiakim. Uh, he was, over the course of, of over 10 chapters in the Bible, uh, just oppressive, 
godless, uh, wicked, um, and though king of Judah. Um, king of, the king of Egypt was actually the one who set Jehoiakim up as a king. And in chapter 36, we have, have this scene that highlights his attempt to bind, destroy God's word. He tried to take control of it. He didn't like the message. He sought to obliterate it, to extinguish it, to remove it, because he did not like the message. So in, Gen- excuse me, in Jeremiah chapter 36, beginning at verse 1, came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came unto Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all nations, from the day I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. So in one sense, it's a very non-discriminating word. It's for Judah, it's for Israel, it's it's for all the nations, okay? Verse three, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Wow, this is the God of mercy, the God of grace. And sometimes God's word comes to us in in a negative uh, construct or with with judgment, with warning. And there's grace, there's mercy, there's pity behind it. Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah and Barak, who was a scribe, Barak wrote from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord, which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And so Barak wrote all of these words on this roll. Jeremiah himself was shut up so he could not go into the house of the Lord. So he commanded Barak saying, go and read the roll which thou hast written from my mouth, the words of the Lord. When you, when you understand Barak, he's going to be very careful to only say these words. He's not going to add. He's not going to take away. He's going to be faithful to God's word. So verse 10, then read Barak in the book, the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So he goes into the house of the Lord to read these words. So at this point, everything's good. The word of God is not bound. It's not being altered or diminished or, 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 or changed. And he read in the chambers of the scribes, in the higher court, at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. And most importantly, he read this word in the ears of all the people. Now, Micaiah A, now he's a good prophet. When he heard these words, he thinks to himself, this word has got to get out. It needs a wider hearing. As a matter of fact, we have to go into the king's house and tell the king these words. The scribe's chamber, the prince's. And so Micaiah has this word read to the next level up, if you will. The scribes, the princes of the king. And so Barak, he takes Barak and Barak reads this book. The princes sent for Barak and the role. They want to hear this firsthand. So he sits down and and he reads it in their ears. And then jumping ahead to verse 16. Now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, he reads it to the scribes. They were afraid, both one and other. And they said to Barak, we will surely tell the king all these words. Now these are the tattletales. These are the bad guys. And they know their king. They know how he's going to react. He's an evil, wicked king. They asked Barak, essentially, where did these words come from? He said, from the Lord to Jeremiah to me, I wrote them down. This is confrontation. And they did tell Barak, they said, go hide yourself and go hide Jeremiah and don't let anybody know where you're at. He knows what's coming. So the role winds up being read to the king. 
And the pivotal verse here is verse 22. The king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. Okay, so we see what's happening here, right? The king is warming himself. There's this big fire, and in comes this guy with a piece of parchment to read God's word. And we we know what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Verse 23, it came to pass that when Jehudai, who was the scribe of the king, had read three or four leaves. He cut it out with a penknife, and he cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all of the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words." Though Jehuadai is the scribe who casts it into the fire, the Bible is ascribing or attributing this to the wicked king Jehoiakim, who probably commanded him to do that very thing. The action, he cut it repeatedly. As a matter of fact, the uh, Hebrew linguists tell us it wasn't like he cut it as he went. As soon as he saw negative words, he began to cut the whole thing, and they even suggest that the language says he even threw the penknife into the fire. The whole thing goes into the fire. He was indignant. Then King Jehoiakim commanded to take Barak the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. So you have this scene where the word of God comes, and simply because the word is unacceptable to the king, he wants to destroy it, and he throws it into the fire. So how does God respond? Verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the roll, and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it, all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. And thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, saying, Why hast thou written therein? Saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy the land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast. The Lord pronounces judgment upon Jehoiakim. And his house, verse 32, then took Jeremiah another roll and gave it to Barak, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and then note, and there were added besides unto them many like words. The word is thrown into the fire, it's destroyed. God sees to it that the word is preserved and then it's expanded. Remember that that verse in the book of Exodus when God's people were under Pharaoh and undergoing tremendous affliction. And the Bible says, of the Israelites, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. So it is with God's word here. Jehoiakim attempting to limit God's word, destroy God's word, simply because he didn't like the message. He didn't ask for an interpretation. He didn't ask for clarification or explanation or time to to repent or time to decide if he wanted to hear this word. He didn't examine himself in the light of God's word. Remember the king of Nineveh? Jonah's preaching came to him. And and here's this wicked king of Nineveh who says, wait a minute, he's right. And, and, And he takes sides with God against himself and his nation. And that's the wicked king of Nineveh. The king of Judah did not do that. He didn't humble himself in the light of God's word. He didn't honor God's word. He didn't cherish God's word. God's word is not bound. God's word is not um, a bound, chained or, or binded up simply because people don't like its message. They might try to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but God's word is going to run and be glorified. 
wicked men are going to have physical means, intellectual arguments, violence. There are going to be a lot of means to, to get rid of God's word. And, and we really need to think about this. The reason, one reason they don't like God's word is they do not believe in God. And they don't want someone to be over in authority over their life. The carnal mind is at enmity with God. The scientist will be forever cutting out portions or destroying God's word. And I've got a real problem with Christians who want to accommodate science by saying God used evolution in creation. God's word doesn't say that. If God did that, God would have told us that, knowing beforehand this great, this great debate that was going to come up. In six days, God created the world and rested on the seventh. It can't get any more plainer than that. The Bible is not here to accommodate science. One of the, the worst evolutionists, um, Dawkins, who I think recently passed away, he said, if, if you're in a room with people who believe in six-day creation, he said they're either insane or stupid or ignorant. So hopefully I'm with a bunch of ignorant people today <laughs> who believe in creation. Not only the scientist, the philosopher is going to cut out portions of God's word because it doesn't align with, with their philosophy of life. Remember, they shall be as a God. They can decide what philosophy is all about and what makes mankind tick and what can make mankind tick better. It's certainly not following God and be, being religious. Pragmatism, rationalism will cut out lots of God's word. I mean, this isn't practical to live like a Christian. This is not rational to believe in a God that you cannot see. Dare I say it, theologians will cut out part of God's word. Or theologians will reinterpret God's word, oftentimes to a very surfacy interpretation of God's word. And even though John 5.39 says, Jesus Christ is the golden key that unlocks all the scriptures and we see him on every page, oh, you're too fanciful. You're too fanciful if you think this is a picture of Christ or this is a picture of redemption. Will a man fight against God? Will all of these isms try to fight against God's word? Again, remember the argument traces itself back that there is no God. So God's word is immediately devalued, discredited. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heavens, said the psalmist. It's settled in the heavens. Thirdly, the next case study, the persecuted Christians um, in the book of Acts. We remember that God's word is not just limited to a physical book. I hope you have portions of God's word memorized in your mind. And if you were put in a jail cell, you could begin to write out all of the, the scriptures that you memorized because it's in our heart. We hide it in our heart, right? It's in our mind. It's in our life. God's word, we, we share it with people verbally out of our life that God has changed. Um, in Acts chapter 7, we have the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen is able to capsulize the entire Old Testament history into his deathbed testimony. And we know that Saul, later Paul, is there aiding and abetting. And then right after that, there seems to be this, this um, recharged effort to persecute the church, this church that Stephen is from. In Acts chapter 8, the very first verse after the martyrdom of Saul, where it says Saul was consenting unto his death. And then it says this, at that time, 
there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And so it appears this persecution against the church is happening. And it's, it's significant enough that believers are fleeing. Brethren are being scattered abroad. And what do they take with them? They take the word of God. We go ahead to chapter 11, verse 19. It says, now all those who were scattered abroad upon this persecution that rose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Venice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word. Preaching the word at this point to none but the Jews only. The persecuted church, the scattered church, takes with them the word of God as their chief possession. So the word, though the church was persecuted, the word is propagated. The word is enlarged. The word is not bound. So we have this wicked king in the book of Jeremiah who attempts to physically destroy God's word. And we see how really childish that is, right? Childish, foolish. We have the persecuted church that is scattered abroad and they take the word out. The next case study Paul in prison in Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts, I think really, it ends in a very odd place. It's very strange the the way the book of Acts ends. The theme verse of the book of Acts has got to be Acts chapter one, verse eight. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, right? The theme verse of the book of Acts. And then if you were to outline the book of Acts, in chapter 1 through chapter 7, the word of God is in Jerusalem. In chapter 8 through chapter 12, the word of God, the gospel of grace, goes into Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 to the end of the book, The word of God is going out even farther to the uttermost parts of the earth, even, dare I say it, even to the Gentiles. And so we keep seeing this this enlargement of God's word, but then the book of Acts ends. You would think that there would be a wider threshold, a, a spreading of God's word, but it ends with Paul under arrest, confined under under house arrest. And Paul very significant servant for the Lord, specifically for the Gentiles. I mean, I mean, why would the book end with Paul now dwelling by himself with the soldier under house arrest? When up to that point, the word of God is just, just propagating, expanding. And Paul says he's committed nothing against the customs of the people, the fathers, He was made a prisoner, constrained to appeal to Caesar. In Acts 28, verse 23, when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging, and he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them that this Jesus, that concerning him, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening, and some believed the things which he had spoken. So it's, it's really interesting what God is doing here. Even though here's another case where Paul is, is in prison of sorts, he's in his own hired house. And we would think that the door of the gospel spreading is, is closed. And yet now God is bringing people to him. And some are believing. And he's expounding to them out of the law, out of the prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ from morning until evening. And he goes on to say, be it known unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. The Jews leave. Paul dwells in his house for two years, receiving everybody who comes to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. 
Yeah, it seems like a really odd place to end, but as soon as you get under the surface, we see it's almost, it's almost fantastic that there seems to be this outward constraint on him, and yet the word of God is going forth. It says, many came to him. He was able to preach Christ out of the law and the prophets. It was a very exhaustive ministry from morning till evening. He had this confidence Nobody forbade him, and it was from this imprisonment that he wrote the book of Ephesians, that he wrote the book of Philippians, that he wrote the book of Colossians, that the things he said had fallen out rather for the furtherance of the gospel, that Christ is made manifest in all of the the palace and in other places. It's here he he wrote that book of of Philemon when Onesimus came to visit him there. Paul in prison in Acts chapter 28, outwardly constrained, attacked, limited, false accusations about what he was saying did not deter the word of God. Well, the fifth place this morning Let's think about what, why is it that the word of God can never, ever be bound or be chained or constrained? The Bible tells us several things. and we, When you think about it, it just seems to me that the evidence is so overwhelming how it would never be bound. First of all, eternality. That is the eternal nature of God's word. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. When we think of God's word as eternal, we don't mean that it's going to go on forever and ever. For something to be eternal, it had to exist from before ever and ever. That's the nature of God's word. And here we are, here's eternity, and we're over here sequestered in time. We're going to bind something that is eternal? Again, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in the heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth shall pass away. My word shall not pass away. It's, if I were to ask you, what's the word of God? We would probably say, here it is, it's the Bible. But God's word is more than what is inscripturated, than what we have, Right? Uh, John said the world itself couldn't contain the books that should be written. We have to believe that, that in the eternal world, wherever that is and whatever it is, God's, God's word is so big, so all-encompassing, so eternal. We're privy, we're blessed to have the canon of Scripture. No less, no more. But there is more of God's word out there, if I can, if I can put it that way. It's eternal. That's why it can't be bound. Secondly, ownership. Who owns this word? The king of Judah thought he had ownership or authority over it and he could cast it into the fire. It's an omnipotent, sovereign God who owns his word. What's man going to do? If you can confine God, if you can limit God, then I will grant you that you can confine and limit his word. Remember, we cannot separate the living word from the written word. We cannot separate the Lord Jesus Christ from from the written word. God owns this word. Man can do nothing to God's possessions. Ownership, God owns this word. And we're custodians of, of, of stewards of the mysteries of Christ. I mean, it's a big deal to have a Bible on our lap. I know we take it for granted because we have so many Bibles and we're in this little company of, of believers and we all you know, talk the same language. And, um, but you have God's word. You cherish it. You love it. And, and the person who lives next door, they don't have that blessing. Thirdly, God's word is spiritual in nature. It's, it's a spiritual word. It's, it's not a piece of paper. It's not written on a stone. 
the divine spirit communicates his word. It's, it's a law that's written upon our heart. It's spiritual in nature. And so the physical attempts at trying to, trying to debate with God is foolish, silly, but it's happening. Attacking God's word, attempting to hide it, redefine it, castigate believers as being ignorant, stupid, or insane. Eternality, ownership, spiritual in nature. By the way, it's interesting to me, I mentioned earlier John 5, verse 39, these are they which testify of me, Jesus said. That's what he says when he's talking about the word is not bound. In verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. He's speaking about the essence of the gospel when he's saying God's word is not bound. And that should be an encouragement to us as we seek to find Christ on every page of his word. God's word cannot be bound because think about its gospel nature. He said, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God that is the gospel, the context bears this out. Now think about the gospel just for a minute, and you're going to see this great irony of those who want to attack God's word or why they try to bind it. What does the gospel do? We would say it preaches liberty to the captives, right? We would say it preaches freedom from the slavery of sin. We would say the gospel paints the sinner as someone who is in prison, someone who is in chains, the chains of sin and spiritual death. The sinner is captive. The word of God releases the captive. How could the word of God be captive if the very nature of it is to release the captive? The word of God that sets us free, it's not free. It doesn't run and be glorified. It has to be. It runs, it's glorified, it has free course. Back to that that first case study of um, Jehoiakim. The word was not just for him. Remember what God said? It was for Judah and Israel and all the nations. It wasn't just for him. And yet he tried to take control of God's word, which was also for others. The very nature of the gospel is to preach liberty to the captives, Jesus said. So the word can't be captive. The nature of God's word is it can never be bound. Well, let me close with a couple of brief applications. As we think about God's word, as we think about the fact that the scriptures cannot be broken, that it's forever settled in the heaven, we need to be encouraged and reminded of this wonderful book that we often take for granted simply because we have it in such abundance And when we have it in abundance, we can neglect it for a day, right? Because it'll be there tomorrow or it'll be there two days from now or next Sunday. It's worth more than thousands of gold and silver. We just need to be encouraged and reminded about the enduring nature of God's word. And may we never be guilty of of limiting God's word by not opening it up and reading it. May we never be be, uh, guilty of, of... trying to redefine it to fit our schedule or to fit our morals. We need to honor God's word. Psalm 138 and verse two, the psalmist said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth because thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Again, the commensurate nature of God's word with God himself. We cannot think too highly of God's word. And, and I know all the arguments. You guys, it's, it's bibliolatry. I can't say the word, but you idolize the Bible. You set it on a pedestal. 
especially if you read the King James, we cannot overestimate God's word. And lastly, I don't like quotes, but I'm going to read this quote from Charles Spurgeon because I I just really appreciate this. He says, I beseech you, let your Bibles be everything to you. Carry this matchless treasure with you continually and read it and read it and read it again and again and again. Turn to its pages by day and by night. Let its narratives mingle with your dreams. Let its precepts color your lives. Let its promises cheer your darkness. Let the divine illumination make glad your heart. As you love God, love this book, which is the book of God and the God of books, as it has been rightly so called. The apostle said, I might be in prison. There might be a lot of things going on in my life, but God's word isn't bound. God's word will continue to go forth and live and accomplish the very purpose for which it has been sent until the final day. And then on that day, when we are ushered into God's presence, then we will really have the right value and estimation of God's word. Let's close our study with the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, forgive us if we have ever not esteemed thy word above all things every day of our life, every day at least as a Christian. We want, Father, the author of thy, Holy, of thy word, the Holy Spirit, to, to make thy word the living and abiding word that it is to us when we read it and, and think upon it. We thank you especially for thy word, its enduring nature, and we can have the same confidence that the apostle had, knowing that, that your word will never fade away, never be diminished, never be vanquished. We thank you especially for that, that element of your word that it proclaims to us the Lord Jesus Christ on every single page, and we can come to know him and love him Uh, We can come to see the tremendous gospel that he personified as he came into this life, being both foretold by the law and the prophets, and then as we read about his earthly ministry, and then as we read about the church age and understand the very reality of Christ going forth conquering and to conquer, and the place of thy word in in that very thing. Thank you, our Father, for thy word. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.